Good morning to you all. It's really good to see you here today, and you are very, very welcome. And Donald Elam this morning, thank you for braving the weather to come out today. And if you are a visitor, you're especially welcome. And, and I'm Pip, and along with Davey, we're part of the pastoral leadership team here in the church. Please, please, please make yourself known to us at the door. It's very important for us as a lead team that we care for those that God has brought into this church. And just on that point, if you know of anyone in this church who is sick or needs a visit, if you know of anyone in this church who has not been out for a few weeks, please tell us because it's impossible for us to know all of that information, but it's deeply important to us that people are cared for, are loved, and are reached out to. So please work with us on that one. You're all very, very welcome. And what we're going to do today is continue on our our series looking at encounters with Jesus. And we're going to do that by looking at a familiar passage of scripture that, and and, and some of the, the radical teachings of Jesus that a large group of people encountered when they heard the Sermon on the Mount. So if you have a Bible, please turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to start reading at verse 38. And in this church, we believe that the Bible is the inspired and the authoritative Word of God. Matthew 5, starting at verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, Do not turn away. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbors and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. And sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? What do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Amen. And we know God will add his blessing to that reading from his word. The Sermon on the Mount is pretty much required reading for every Christian. We're not into giving out homework here in the Donald Elam, but if you have never read Matthew 5, 6, and 7 all in one go, why don't you take 15, 20 minutes this afternoon to do so? It is required reading for every Christian. And in this sermon, Jesus gives a masterful exposition of Old Testament law. He also pointed to himself as our hope. And he also gave a scathing assault on the legalistic teaching of the religious elite. An example of that is in verse 43 where Jesus said, You have heard it said, love your neighbors and hate your enemies. But actually will not find hate your enemies anywhere in Scripture. 
This was Jesus making a scathing assault on the religious leaders of that day and their legalistic interpretation of the law. And what Jesus did then was he highlighted that, but then he went another, to another level and he said, but I say, love your enemies. So he used this sermon to, to expose Pharisaic teaching, but to masterfully expound Old Testament law and in that show that its demands were humanly impossible. He showed that its demands, the demands of the law were humanly impossible. An example of that is in verse 48. Jesus said, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Impossible. Impossible for us to achieve that ultimate standard of perfection in the law. But Jesus then showed us the problem is not with the law. The law is good and holy. The problem is with our hearts. That's what needs dealt with. An example of that teaching is a bit earlier in chapter 5 when Jesus spoke about adultery. And he said, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Now, Jesus was not, was not saying there that self-mutilation is the cure for lust because blind people can lust. He was using exaggerated language to emphasize that this action or trying to achieve the perfection of the law was impossible. That's not the cure for the problem. The cure for the problem is in the heart. It's the sin that each of us have in our lives. And the answer is found in dealing with the core issue. And Jesus reveals himself in this sermon as the one who can deal with the problem. He's the one who can sort the problem out. Why? Because in his life, he lived up to the perfect standard of the law for us on our behalf so that we can find salvation in him. So this sermon, he expounds the law brilliantly. He points to himself as our only hope and he attacks legalistic teaching. However, on top of all of that, what Jesus did was he used the law in this sermon to show how we should live our lives. He said that he did not come to do away with the law. So he used it as a roadmap for our discipleship. He used the law as a roadmap for our discipleship and how we should follow him. You see, following Jesus should transform our lives. When David prays earlier that we leave here different than how we come in, that's a prayer from the heart because we believe that if we follow Jesus, it should transform our lives and people should see that transformation in us. They should see the difference. So Jesus presents this radical nature of following him. And it is radical because it's not easy and it goes against the grain of the world and means that we will stand out as kingdom people. In verse 30, 47, Jesus said this, if you only greet your own brethren, if you only love those who love you, what are you doing that's more what are you doing that's more than the rest of the world? We're to be standout kingdom people. People should see that transformation and Jesus calls us to more. He says, you've heard it said, but I say. You religious leaders, here's what you're teaching. 
but I'm calling you to more. Let me give you a deeper and a broader explanation of the gospel and of what it is to follow me. You see, the law, it's not just about murder. If you're even angry with someone in your heart, you're guilty. It's not just about adultery. Stop looking and lusting. Love your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. You know, there's no trophies in the kingdom for only loving the people who love you. Jesus is calling us to a life that's not easy, a life that is counterintuitive for most of this world. And if we authentically want to follow him, we will stand out. People will see the transformation in our lives. So Jesus presents a way through this sermon of life that's not easy or instinctive. And here is one of the greatest transformations people should see in our lives. One of the biggest expressions of our faith is seen in how we deal with other people. It's seen in how we deal with other people. It's remarkable that the greatest sermon ever preached, in the greatest sermon ever preached, Jesus focuses mainly on our relationships with other people. Let your light shine. Keep the light on. Let your light shine and others may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. He focuses mainly on our relationships with other people because one of the primary ways you and I prove our walk with God is seen in how we deal with and in how we treat other people. This gospel transformation should be evident. So this is a sermon of a roadmap for discipleship. And the people would have been shocked by his teaching, completely countercultural. And in today's passage, Jesus looks at how we should deal with and treat other people in terms of how we view revenge or retaliation. He said this, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, let's stop there because this is hugely misunderstood. Gandhi, whenever he read, was alive, and he read the Sermon on the Mount, he was enthralled by its teaching, but then aghast when he came to this part, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And he said, if, if this world was to live by an eye for an eye, it would eventually end up with everybody in it blind. But he didn't understand the context, as others don't. You see... An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, or the law of retaliation, lex talionis. It was used by the Israelites to help judges deal with civil matters. Deal with civil matters so that they could give out, by giving out appropriate punishments for crime. This was not a law set up by God to promote revenge. This was something that was designed to prevent and limit the extent of it. The courts were to measure out what the justice or the punishment was. See, the world system of revenge, folks, it says, you did this to me, I'm going to destroy you. That's the sort of thinking that will end up with a blind, toothless world. I'm going to destroy you. But God enabled, through his law, the courts to limit revenge, to limit retaliation in lives. And that's very important for us, how God upholds the system of justice that we have in our society. But what was happening was the religious leaders were starting to promote people to an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, and taking that into their own hands, bringing it onto the streets. That's why Jesus said, you've heard from these guys, you've heard from these guys, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say, but I say, 
They were promoting the blind, toothless world. Gandhi was aghast by, but Jesus upheld the system that was in the courts. And ultimately God and his perfect justice. But this, this, people listening would have been shocked by the teachings. Here's what Jesus was teaching. See, your transformed life, it shouldn't be marked with revenge or retaliation. It should be marked by reconciliation. Your life should not be marked with retaliation or revenge. It should be marked with reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says, God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That's what you and I are to be about. That's what we are to be about. Jesus is calling us to more. What are you doing that's more than the rest of the world? And what makes us stand out? He doesn't want a blind, toothless world. So he challenges us to live lives that seek, get this please, he challenges us to live lives that seek the best human relationships possible. He does not want us to be caught up in revenge or retaliation that nullifies or puts the light out in relationships. He wants us to live in a way that leaves the light on through reconciliation. Most of the world stews in this revenge that switches lights out. Jesus calls for more. Leave the light on in your life for reconciliation with others. An eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. Hey, that's for the courts to decide. That's a teaching we all need to adhere by. We are to pursue love, not personal vengeance. Revenge wrecks relationships. We are to pursue reconciliation. And then he gives these radical examples to emphasize this. He says, see if somebody slaps you in the right cheek, turn the other one. Turn the other one. Now again, we miss stuff in our culture because we don't understand the culture fully of that day. This was not Jesus talking about dealing with somebody who physically assaults you. Because in that culture, to slap someone in the cheek was a gross insult. To even touch a man's beard was a gross insult. Because the man's beard spoke of his manly dignity. Transfer that to Christ, who we believe had his beard ripped from his face. That was not just a horrible accident. That was robbing him of his manly dignity. And that quality. To even touch a Jewish man's beard is grossly insulting. So Jesus isn't talking about a physical attack. He's talking about when people insult us. Remember when Saddam Hussein's statue was pulled down by the American soldiers? We watched their television screens as those people went over and they started slapping his face. They even got their dirty shoes off and slapped his face. It was a gross insult. It was the most, it was the most awful insult that they could pour upon this man that they could think of. Jesus says, turn the other cheek. When someone insults you, when someone mistreats you, when someone disgraces you, turn the other cheek. I don't know who it was, but somebody once said, actually, by turning the other cheek, we give our enemies the opportunity to kiss us. I love that. Because we cannot seek reconciliation through revenge. Or when we retaliate in a situation, we cannot keep the light on. This sets us apart as kingdom people. Now, we can and should acknowledge mistreatment. That's what the law is for. 
but we should not live in the world of retaliation. Then he goes on, he says, somebody sues you for your tunic. The tunic was a, a Jewish man's undergarment. Somebody sues you for your tunic, let him have your cloak, his outer garment too. The people were encountering teaching here that was revolutionary. It sounds really simple to us, but this was completely countercultural because according to the law, you could only take a man's tunic or sue a man for his tunic, his undergarment. You couldn't have his cloak because if you had both of them, oh, you'd leave the guy, yeah, naked. We're in church, sorry, Lord. In other words, it was the man's right. It was the man's right to keep his cloak. So Jesus was actually saying here, sometimes for the greater good, sometimes for the greater good of reconciliation, we should give up our rights. Even if it leaves us embarrassed or disgraced. Jesus was saying again here, he wasn't saying, let everybody walk over the top of you. That's not what he was saying here. Because we can see examples in scripture where the apostle Paul used his rights as a Roman citizen to get out of difficult situations. But are there moments, folks, are there moments when we have the right to not react in a way? Are there moments when we have the right to not demand payment? Are there moments when we have the right to not be angry? And we can forgo those rights to leave the light on for reconciliation and find freedom from the bitterness of revenge. Of course there are. So these people are encountering teaching of how to pursue the best relationships possible. Jesus used the law and culture to show how we can leave the light on for relationship instead of revenge. And for the rest of the the talk, I want to focus on the, the other part of his teaching here. And whilst the context is still retaliation, I want to broaden it out to see how Jesus, when he said, go the extra mile, can help us generally have the best relationships possible. See, when Jesus said, whoever compels you to run or to go a mile, you go too. He was referring to a Roman law. A Roman law where a Roman soldier could come to an able-bodied civilian and say to them, carry my load for a mile. That was the law. Carry my load for a mile. You see, the, 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 Rome had, had conquered most of the Mediterranean world. They had built one of their marvels was the road system that they built. Over 50,000 miles of road. And every mile had a stone marker. And a soldier could come up to anyone and say, carry my backpack, which could weigh up to 100 pounds. Carry it for a mile. (laughs) This course was a very unpopular law. People hated it. Can you imagine the bombshell when Jesus says this? He's calling us for more than the required mile in life and what's required of us. He's calling us to go the extra. That's what marks us out as kingdom people. What are you doing that's more? Seems outrageous, doesn't it? But I'll tell you, we'll never leave the light on in our relationships if we just settle for, or don't even settle, for what's required of us in life, the mile. How will we be different from the rest of the world? Here it is. It's the second mile, and living in that second mile. 
It's a call to go above and beyond. And Jesus was never a do as I say, not as I do person or teacher. He lived in the second mile. He knew all about that road well. When he was bleeding drops of blood in the garden of Gethsemane, at the very thought of the cross, the horror of it all, He could have chosen a different road, but he didn't. He went the second mile. He said, not my will, but yours be done. He knew the road of the second mile well. He lived in it. He lived on it. And he calls us to do the same. He went to the cross, not for himself, not to carry a soldier's load, but because of our sin. He lived in the second mile, and if we are authentic followers of Christ, so will we. We need to be second milers, because that's where we find Jesus. That's where we are stand out, because I'll tell you this. See the second mile? It's never a crowded place. The second mile is never a crowded place. There are many in the world, and they'll not even go 100 yards towards what's expected of them. Now, don't get me wrong. Because the reason many people don't even go to the mile of what's expected in their lives is because expectation can be difficult. You know, anytime I've tried to train in the past to get myself fit, it's all past tense. Anytime I've ever tried to do that, no matter how fit I've got, running that first mile, I'm always out of breath. It's tough. harder than what's expected it's difficult because of that we can sometimes think we're doing the second mile when actually we're only doing the first mile and we shouldn't confuse the two if I work in a factory and there's a culture there are people turning up for work late I am not running the second mile if I decide well look I'm going to make sure I'm on work on time that's first mile That's the integrity of what should be expected of our lives. That's not second mile stuff. Second mile stuff is when everybody's left early. That I stay behind at my own expense to help the boss who's absolutely snowed under trying to meet this deadline but can't do it because everybody's cleared off early. That's going over and above the call. Being a second miler goes above and beyond and it actually puts us in a great place to not be the first to get our P45 as well but don't confuse first and second milers because Jesus calls us to stand out from the mediocrity of what's expected I confused the two this week in my life a couple of occasions I thought I was being a second miler my mom phoned me on Wednesday about lunchtime and she had a, a hospital appointment that she was worried about, and it was next, to be next week. She said, they're able to take me today. Philip, can you come and take me to hospital? And all of a sudden, I thought, what? Mom, no. Oh, no, you've no idea how much I've got to get sorted out for Alpha tonight. I've got a, a shed load of stuff that I need to do here. No, it's going to be impossible for me. Can you try and see if somebody else will do it? And then she put the phone down, And I went back to my sermon that I was preparing on the second mile. And then I said, what? God's calling me to do more. Of course I should take my mother to hospital. And I went with her, took her to the hospital. But I had to stop kidding myself thinking that was a second miler. Because really I was only doing what should be expected of me. That's first mile stuff. 
That woman has poured her love and her life into mine. Of course I should take her to hospital. The second mile is when you look at an opportunity and you see, look, how can I take this opportunity into the second mile by my attitude, by my focus? And when we went to the hospital that day, we had a lovely time together. And I still managed to have things ready in the wonderful team here for Alpha. Brilliant. Don't confuse the two. Thursday morning, the snow comes. My wife, Rachel, has an early morning shift. And the alarm goes, what time is it at, Rachel? A horrific time, about six o'clock or something. And I'm lying there warm in my bed. And I'm thinking I should get up and I should get Rachel's car switched on and clear all the snow off it and get it ready for it. <laughs> but it's cold. <laughs> but it's cold. <laughs> but I'm preaching a sermon on the second mile. Of course I should get up. I went down, got the car, turned switched on, so it'd be nice and warm for her when she was ready to get into it. Cleared all the snow off it and round the car a bit. And then when I got back into bed, I had to wipe the smog, have an eye done well, look off my face. And I... <laughs> Any idea of going into the second mile? That's first mile stuff. That's what should be expected. I should have looked at the situation and said, by my attitude, by my love, by my willingness, how can I take this opportunity into the second mile and do it in a way that communicates love and value? Because that's where Jesus is. And I use these illustrations to help us not confuse first and second milers, but also because Jesus calls us to live in that second mile. And the reason I want to leave with us over the next just few moments for doing this is being a second miler creates the opportunities for us to have the best human relationships possible. It really does. Jesus calls us out of the mediocrity of the minimum, out of the mediocrity of what's expected of us in life, to go beyond our job description and to do our best. Why? Because we're kingdom people. Yes, some will criticize us. Some will judge us. Who do you think you are? You think you're better than me? I'm sure we've heard them all. But in spite of that, we should want to stand out as people and pursue the best relationships possible, but it's only found in the second mile. It's never a crowded place. It's a standout place creates great opportunity. Second mile is the place where you and I can really lighten the load for those who are struggling around us. The second mile is the one, I'll repeat this. The second mile, sorry, it only takes one second miler to change the complete atmosphere in a home. It only takes one second miler to change a complete atmosphere in a home. Be that person. Be that person. It only takes one second miler to change the atmosphere in a team or in an office or in a working environment. Let's be that person. Why? But because we cannot travel in the seven mile without influencing people. Can't do it. And we will know we're a second miler if we're starting to surprise people around us. People are seeing the difference in our lives. We're standing out. Now, we shouldn't stand out to get a pat on the back. We do this because we're convicted by Jesus, the life he lived, what he taught, and we want to follow him. 
But when we do, we will only influence others because it's never a crowded place the second mile. It's always stand out. What would it look like if we were a church of second milers? What would it look like if we were a church of second milers? I tell you, we would stand out. Yes, there would be from the fir- some from the first mile. There would be some from even back beyond that who would judge us, who would think those holy joes or question our attitudes or our motives. But I reckon we're not going to win Donald, folks. We're not going to win this nation unless we live in the second mile. It's not going to happen. In that film, The Greatest Showman, Barnum was the guy who said, no one ever made a difference by being like everybody else. It's true. And it's true spiritually. What are you doing that's more than others? What are you doing that's more than others? We're to stand out. Amazing teaching. Jesus wants us to pursue the best relationships possible. So in the greatest sermon he ever preached, he focuses mainly on our relationships with others because that marks us out as kingdom people. So instead of revenge and retaliation, let's look to keep the light on in terms of our relationships and in terms of how we deal with insult, in terms of how we deal with disgrace and in how we sometimes give up our rights for the greater good. But if we want the best relationships, we need to go to the last second mile you know there's more than two folks in life isn't there there's those who aren't even bothered to go the first mile there's those who will do what's expected and no more and then there's the two milers those with an adjusted a transformed attitude and focus and determination in their hearts to pull themselves up out of mediocrity and being those chameleon Christians that just blend in with the background and the world I want to be different. We're not content with the ordinary. We want to stand out for Jesus. What sets you apart? What sets me apart from others? Do you know? Often the opportunity to run the second mile is right in front of us. Often the opportunity to run the second mile is right in front of us. But we can miss it because of familiarity. And the best opportunity for you might be sitting right beside you now. The best opportunity for you to run that second mile might be right beside you now. Those who are closest to us, don't miss the opportunity because of familiarity. What do we need to do for our husband, for our wives, that can transform our marriage and take it into the second mile? What do we need to do to leave a light on in terms of how we reach out to that child, that son or daughter who's gone astray? What do we need to do to get into that second mile so that we don't retaliate so angrily when the kids are cracking us up? What do we need to do to influence that friend, influence that neighbor, to get into that second mile? What do we need to do to make a difference. And even in the context of this scripture, what do we need to do to connect with those we struggle with or even hate? We love to take revenge on. What can we do to take us out of mediocrity and into the second mile? Jesus challenges us. But here's the crack, right? We're the ones who choose what level we live our lives at. All right? He challenges us this morning, but you and I, we're the ones who choose what level we live our lives at. We absolutely are. There's power in the second mile. 
There's love in putting other people's lives and difficulties before our own. There can never be anything but good when we seek to pour love and value into people's lives. Come on, church. Let's go further. Let's do the more. Let's pursue the best relationships possible. Let's leave the lights on. And let's get into that second mile. Amen? Amen. Okay, God bless you. The worship team are going to come up and they're going to lead us here.